Uh, we're in our series uh, called Live It in the, in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we're continuing that, that series uh, this morning. So if you want to grab your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 6 and find your way there. That would be, uh, that would be great. As you find your way there, um, just to tell you the story from our family, uh, years ago when, um, when Trina and I and the kids were living in Hong Kong, uh, we, had, we had sort of this favorite place to go that was on, on the mainland in China. In fact, when friends from out of town would visit, uh, we, would, uh, we would love to take them there. Uh, it, was in this, it was actually in the town of Samjun. You get on this train in Hong Kong, you go uh, for a bit up into China, and you get off in Samjun, you, you walk past the shopping malls, you walk past the crowds of people, um, and, uh, and, and we made our way, about a half hour walk from the train station, we made our way to an abandoned parking garage. This abandoned parking garage, seven stories tall. Uh, we, we'd go there with our kids and with, with friends, and we'd, we'd get in the elevator, take the elevator to the top floor, get out on the seventh floor in this abandoned parking garage. And there on the seventh floor of this parking garage was a small business uh, that rented go-karts. Um, and, uh, and, and the go-karts, you, you, they had this abandoned parking garage all to yourself. Now, every time we brought someone from the U.S., they'd look at these go-karts, and they'd have that look in their eye like, is this safe? And we'd always respond by, no, not, not safe, but very fun. Because uh, these go-karts, uh, they, they would go somewhere around 35 miles an hour. And, uh, they, and we'd have, and we'd, you know, our whole family, we'd have friends, and we'd be zipping all around this parking garage, and there'd be tires piled up on turns, and, um, and I think they actually sprayed some uh, silicone or put some oil down, because you would slide, you'd spin out, and you'd hit the tires, and, and then you were fair game for the rest of the family, because they would come and just collide with you. And when we were done uh, with that day in the parking garage, and we're on the train going back home, I mean, there are stories being told of near misses and collisions and how many times you've lapped mom. And we would just talk about that all the way back. Our kids loved it. And uh, when we were coming back to the U.S., my, my youngest son, Cal, we did these 12-year-old trips with our, with, our, with our boys and our girls for some significant conversations in their life. And it was Cal's turn for a 12-year-old trip. And he chose Disney World. And we went to Disney World and they had go-karts there. And his eyes lit up when he saw the go-karts because they looked very safe, and they uh, they were they were painted nicely, and uh, and and yet when he got in the car, he was significantly disappointed because they didn't have the zip that the go karts in China did. You didn't go from zero to forty miles an hour like in seconds. Uh, you went from like zero to three miles an hour in sixty seconds at Disney World. Because all the power of the engine that was in that go-kart that, that go was, was governed, it was limited uh, with a safety device called a governor. The safety device that would, would limit your speed, you could only go so fast on these go-karts. China, go as fast as you want. Back in the U.S., great looking go-karts, but limited power. I want to talk to you this morning about us being in relationship with an all-powerful God, an almighty God, and yet being in a relationship with him, and in some ways, what we have done is we've taken God and we've limited his power and his activity that can be expressed in our lives. That there are ways that in our Christ life, as we follow him, we can actually like put a governor on him and try to control. Actually, we can. We can actually keep him 
keep his full power from being released in our lives. I want to show that to you from Mark chapter 6. Look in the first six verses of Mark chapter 6 and how that happens. And as we talk about this, I want to remind you and I that we are in relationship with the almighty God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. We are in relationship through Jesus Christ with the God who parted the Red Seas, who brought water from the rock, who fed his children in the wilderness with manna, who sent his son out of love in the season that we're celebrating right now, Advent season. His son who then, who, who, who ministered, who healed incurable diseases, who set, who set the, the oppressed free, who taught with authority. You and I are in relationship with an all-powerful God. But what ends up happening is oftentimes his power is not released in our lives because we limit him. God is limited. I want to show you that from Mark chapter 6. So if you go go there, if you're there already, I want to read the first six verses of of, of Mark 6. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you'll find one in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, page 1582, you'll, you'll find this passage, this, this short passage. Uh, Mark 6, verse 1, Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Up to this point, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been traveling, traveling through Galilee. He's been going to different villages. And when he would go into a village, he would go and teach in the synagogue. And when people heard him in the synagogue, they, were, they would be amazed. And, and they would be drawn to him. In fact, we've read several times how crowds pressed in around Jesus. And they brought with them, the crowds brought with them their sick, the, the, the lame, those who were, were demon-possessed. And, and they lined up to have Jesus just speak a word or to touch and heal and set free. And this happened again and again and again. And Jesus is now coming home to, to Nazareth, his hometown. And he's doing the same thing. He comes and he teaches in the synagogue. And once again, the people in a Galilean village, happens to be Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, the people in that village are amazed at Jesus and his teaching. Yet in Nazareth, what we have is not amazement that leads to honor and to, and, to, and to coming to Jesus. What we have in Nazareth is amazement that leads to analysis, to questions, and actually to pulling away from Jesus. And it's all rooted in this idea of unbelief. I mean, you, you got to get this. Jesus was totally willing to heal, to set free. He was totally willing to to encourage. He's done it all around Galilee. And when he comes to Nazareth, it's not that he's not willing to heal or to set free. It's not that he would not. It was that he 
could not. He could not heal because of their unbelief. And so Jesus teaches and the people hear him teach and they ask the question, where where did he get all this wisdom? What school did he go to? Rabbis would have gone to rabbinical schools. They would have followed mentors and and they know Jesus. I mean, he grew up in that town and he didn't do the rabbinical school route. I mean, so where where does he he get this wisdom? And isn't he just a, a carpenter? Didn't he build some of the things we have around our village? I mean, literally, you could, you could translate this as, isn't he just a construction worker? Isn't he a blue-collar guy? How does this guy, what kind of status, what kind of, what kind of resume does this guy have? He's a blue-collar worker. And then they say, isn't he the son of Mary? You and I might miss the veiled insult there, but in that day, a son was always attached to his father. They should be saying, isn't he just the son of Joseph? But to say that he's the son of Mary is to bring up, to resurface this idea that Jesus had an illegitimate birth. That we don't really even know who Jesus' father was. I mean, he he doesn't have the right track into ministry he, he he's a blue collar guy i mean who's he think is in and we he's got kind of an illegitimate birth there's a lot of questions surrounding his birth and and isn't he the brother of, of of james and joseph and simon and judas and aren't his sisters among us i mean didn't we babysit this guy didn't we change his diapers didn't we go to school with him we have this idea this this, this situation where familiarity breeds contempt we're so familiar with jesus that, that, that who does he think he is? And what they end up doing is they refuse to believe. And Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. And he says that, that well-known phrase, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown. And Jesus, it wasn't that he would not. Jesus could not. He could not heal. He could not deliver. He could not cure because of unbelief. Unbelief. Unbelief limits God. And let me just say this straight up to you and I. One of the most dangerous things that we could allow ourselves to fall into as Christ followers is to become unbelieving believers. In fact, one of the most dangerous things for any church is to be true. One of the most toxic things for the Christian community is to become a community of unbelieving believers. To, to create, oftentimes what we do is instead of creating a theology about who, of, of, of who God is, we create theology around what our experience is. We filter our understanding of who God is by what our experience is. And when our experience is linked to unbelief and God is limited, our view of God is, is skewed. And this unbelief kept Jesus, not that he would not, it was that he could not in his own hometown. He could not heal. He could not deliver. Only a few who came to him could he heal. Um, Trina and I, when our kids were younger, had a minivan, and uh, we were driving home one day, going up a hill, and as we were going up the hill, noticed it didn't have the power that it should have, and uh, we did make it home, and when we got home, I pick up the phone, and I call a mechanic, and uh, because that's what you do when your car is not functioning uh, right. You, you call a mechanic, and I took the car in, and, and of course, the first thing a mechanic does is he lifts the hood um, to find out what's wrong. 
Because everything that, that a van would need um, to go up a hill or down a hill or up I-5 or down I-5 is in the van. So what you want to do is you want to discover what's blocking the, 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 the power. What's, 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 what's the problem? Diagnose it and fix it. And, and when it comes to our spiritual lives, our, the life we live in Christ, when we understand, we, we have this, idea, this understanding of, you know, what is happening here is not happening here. What we, what we need to do is pop the hood and ask ourselves some important questions that are related to this idea of limiting God. Because what we don't want to do is create a theology about what God can't. Because this is often what we do. Well, because it happened, hasn't happened for me, God can't. And we'll create mindsets around that. And, and we don't want to do that. Yet, in the, in the, on the opposite side, we don't want to cause a reactionary error. We don't want to go from God can't to, you know, if you pull the right levers and you push the right buttons, you can get whatever you want with God. And that would be an error on either side. So when we talk about limiting God, we don't want to arrive at conclusions that are false and say, God doesn't, God can't, nor do we want to say, you know, if I do A, I add a little B, I automatically always get C. We avoid driving up both sides of those roads, but what we want to do is place ourselves in that, in that position of blessability to root out all unbelief so that when we bring our needs, when we bring our requests to the Father, the sovereign God, the all-wise God, it isn't a could not. It's a I'm willing. Or it might be like he said to Paul. No, I, I'm not going to do that because my grace is sufficient for you and, and this is for your own good. We trust him. We place ourselves in that, that position of blessability and say, Lord, your will, not mine. But we want to root out all unbelief. So here's what I want to do in the, in the time I got left is I want to just give you some dimensions to, to help you understand what unbelief truly looks like. You know, unbelief, well, what, what it, how does it manifest itself in our life? And I want to do that by looking in the Gospels at occasions in which Jesus highlighted people's unbelief. You ever read the Gospels and, and heard these statements in which Jesus says, Oh, ye of little faith? You've seen those statements? There's, there's actually five of them in the book of Matthew. And each of the five unveils, reveals a, a dimension of unbelief. In fact, that phrase, O ye of little faith, is the same word for unbelief. So if we look at those five phrases, what we'll see is this is what unbelief could look like. This is, this is what it, if you're wondering what is unbelief, this, we'll, we'll discover what it looks like. And as we look at it, I think your hearts will be encouraged. Mine, my, mine has been encouraged because four out of the five times where Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith. He's not talking to people who are on the, the fringes of faith. He's talking to his closest friends, to his disciples. You know, the, the guys who should have faith. They're seeing it all. So sometimes we end up beating ourselves up. We, 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 we heap shame and guilt on ourselves because we should know better. We'll take heart. The guys who saw it all, four to five times where Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith, he's saying it to his closest friends. 
So I, I just want to zip through these, these five dimensions. If you've got your Bible, it would be helpful if you turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Turn to, to Matthew chapter 6. It's on page 1522 in your, in your pew Bible. Ma- Matthew 6. I just want to z- just quickly touch on these five phrases, give you a little context, and show you what unbelief looks like so that we can root it out so that we don't make the mistake of limiting God in our lives. Matthew 6, verse 30, you'll find the first time Jesus says, uh, O ye of little faith, a little context for you. He's teaching about money and possessions. Uh, Verse 19, he says, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus is then going to say, Store your treasures in heaven. He's talking about the daily necessities of life. What What he's preaching here is this sermon saying, Hey, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about your finances. Don't worry about clothing. Don't worry about that stuff and let God take care of you. In fact, he's talking about clothing in verse 20, uh, 29. He's saying, Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are, speaking of flowers. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? O ye of little faith. So don't worry about all these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. The, 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 the manifestation of unbelief here is simply worry or anxiety. We'll put these up on the screen. Worry. With worry, the, the basic root question here is, God, are you going to take care of me? God, are you going to meet my needs? And what Jesus is saying, hey, take a look at the flowers. If God can dress you know, wildflowers beautifully, he's going to take care of you. Those are here today, gone tomorrow. So worry is one of the first ways that unbelief manifests itself. And, and it becomes a, an issue of trust. Is God going to care for me? That, that's the first one. Chapter 8, verse 26. Flip a couple pages. 8.26. This, the context for this is Jesus is on the boat with his disciples. The disciples are headed across the lake and a storm kicks up. Jesus is asleep in the boat. He, he's sleeping there and the disciples who, by the way, are experienced fishermen, they know these waters so that when a storm starts kicking up, they're not panicking here. They're in a serious problem. The, the wind and the waves are kicking up and they're, they're fearing for their lives. Yet, there is Jesus. He's, he's like snoring in, in the boat. He's, he's asleep. And these guys are, are, are concerned for their lives. And it says in, in, uh, in, well, in the end of the, that uh, section there in verse 25, it says, the disciples went and woke Jesus up. They woke him up shouting, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Verse 26, Jesus responded, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Oh, ye of little faith. Then he got up, rebuked the wind and the waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. Fear is the second manifestation of unbelief. It's fear of abandonment by God. It's it's rooted in the question of God, don't you see what's coming? Don't you see what's happening to me? Again, don't you care? Fear, anxiety begins to rise up. And it gives birth to unbelief. 
I was talking with, with a woman last night. We were, we were walking out after the 6.30 service, and her story just like moved me because uh, here was a woman. She expressed that uh, this past year her husband had died. She's a widow. And she told me, she said, Steve, you know, fear, that, that was the one way that unbelief manifests itself in my life because I'm afraid of the night. I'm afraid when I'm alone at night because my, my husband's not there. Some of you, some of you, perhaps you're a widow and, and you, can, you can relate to that. And she said that just, I, I need to give my fear to God and believe that he's present with me. See, fear, it's often rooted in this thing, you know, God's forgotten me. And it can lead to unbelief. Third one, uh, go to chapter 14, verse 31. A few more pages. Matthew 14, 31. As you're finding your way there, let me just give you a little context again. Again, we're on the water with the disciples. Again, we're with Jesus' closest friends. And this time, the, the disciples are alone in the boat, and they're, they're making their way across the lake, and Jesus comes walking on the water. He's sort of just going to speed past them, and the disciples are freaked out, like every one of us would be freaked out. Um, and they think, it's, is it a ghost? And they realize, no, we think it's Jesus. And so Peter shouts out, Peter sh- says, Jesus, if that's you, ask me to come out to walk on the water to you. And Jesus says to Peter, Come. Now, you need to understand this. Peter is fully convinced that because Jesus has called him out on the water, he can step out of that boat and walk on the water to Jesus. We know he's fully convinced because he does it. He begins walking on the water to Jesus. As he is walking on the water with this opinion that he can do this because Jesus has called him to, he notices winds and waves. And he comes to a second opinion that those winds and those waves are dangerous. And, and now what he's, he's, he's convinced that Jesus called him out and he's walking on water. And then he's convinced he's in danger and he begins to sink. He cries out. Jesus then rescues him. And Jesus says, Jesus immediately reached out, verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. Oh, ye of little faith. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? Doubt. Doubt is another manifestation of unbelief. Now, don't come to the conclusion that this means I can't ask questions. This, this doubt is not the He's not talking about being a skeptic or a cynic. Peter was not a skeptic. Peter was not a cynic. He fully believed. The problem was he fully believed two things that were in contradiction to each other. He was double-minded. He believed he could walk on water, and he believed that his life was in danger. And those two beliefs, this double-mindedness, caused him to sink, and Jesus had to rescue him. That's the doubt we're talking about. It's not like, I can't ask questions. You can ask your questions, but what you don't want to do is is hold two opposing views and try and live that way. It's unbelief. So we have worry, fear, and then doubt. Two more. Chapter 16, verse 18. Again, we're on the boat with the disciples. They're on the boat. And they realize somebody didn't pack the lunches. No one brought the bread. 
And as they're having this kind of, you know, like, hey, is it in your sack? Or is it under your bench? Or where, where's the bread? And then Jesus says these words, watch out, Jesus warned them. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. At this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. They, they got to this point, like, okay, you know what? We've messed up. Someone here's messed up. They're pointing fingers. They're blaming. And now Jesus knows, and we're all in trouble. Who's responsible for this? Because he just talked about yeast, so Jesus knows. Can't hide anything from Jesus. Jesus is listening to this conversation, and he interrupts them and says, oh, guys, 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 I'm not talking about bread. In fact, Jesus ends up saying, oh, ye of little faith, you have so little faith. Why are you arguing with each other about having no bread? Don't you understand even yet? Don't you remember the 5,000 I fed with five loaves and the baskets or leftovers you picked up? Or the 4,000 I fed with seven loaves and the large baskets of leftovers you picked up? Why can't you understand I'm not talking about bread? So again I say, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What he's talking about here with the Pharisees and the Sadducees is beware of their teaching. It will, in, it will infect you. It will, it, will, it will influence you like yeast does to, 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 to dough. The disciples have misunderstood him and, and they think they're in trouble because there's no bread on the boat. And Jesus is saying, guys, don't you remember what happened last week? I fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. I fed 4,000 people with seven loaves. There's 12 of you. Don't you think if I can handle 5,000 and 4,000, I can handle 12? Don't you? So little faith. The issue here is forgetfulness. This is the manifestation of unbelief. They've forgotten what God has done in the past, and they are seemingly in a crisis, a bread crisis, on the boat, And they have completely forgotten God's activity in their lives in the past. Ever been there? You're in it, you're you're, you're facing an obstacle, you got a hurdle in front of you. You, God's been faithful in the past, but there's something about this one that's got you stressed out, worked up. God has never failed you, He's always cared for you. Yet forgetfulness of God's activity in the past often leads to unbelief in our presence and in our futures. One more. Last one you get in chapter 17, verse 20. This is the story of the transfiguration. Jesus is on the mountain with his disciples, Peter, James, and John. You get nine disciples at the bottom of the hill. They're trying to cast out a demon out of a boy who's uh, demon-possessed. Dad has brought him. They're unsuccessful. Jesus is coming down the mountain. He gets down there. He's wondering what all the ruckus is, and they tell the story. Here's this kid. The disciples couldn't heal him. And Jesus says in verse 17, you faithless and corrupt people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon in the boy, and it left him. From that moment, the boy was well. Afterward, the disciples asked Jesus privately, why couldn't we cast out that demon? You don't have enough faith, Jesus told them. I tell you the truth, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. In the other Gospels that that tell this story, in fact, Mark tells the story in chapter 9, in verse 29, he adds on, this kind of evil spirit, this kind of spirit can only come out with prayer and fasting. Prayer 
Prayerlessness is, I would say, one of the ultimate realities of unbelief. Prayerlessness is, is saying, God, I don't need you. I can, I can handle this. It's a self-reliance. It's a, God, I don't need you. When I do need you, I'll call. And what Jesus is saying is that in a, in a, when, you, when, you're, when you're a person of prayer, a man or a woman of prayer, you are in relationship. That's just, that's how we do human relationships, right? We talk to each other. We converse with each other. And apparently, private prayer gives birth to public power. When you spend time privately in prayer, the relationship paves the way for God's power to be revealed and to, and to be uh, unleashed. Prayer takes the limits off of what God wants to do. God, it's not God would not, it's, it's God could not in, the, in, in this town of Nazareth. And as we look at these five dimensions of unbelief, worry, fear, doubt, forgetfulness, prayerlessness, these are all dimensions of what unbelief could look like in our lives. Now the reality is, as you look at those five on the screen right there, not all five are going to be present in your life. But as I've looked at this, in my own study, and, and all weekend long, I can think of moments in my life where one of the five have, have definitely been present. It's not that we don't ever fall into this, or we don't ever are tempted to worry or fear or doubt or forget or be prayerless. But what we want to do is any time one of these things manifests itself in our lives, we want to root it out. We want to root it out, not because we're pushing buttons and pulling levers to get what we want, It's so that we can place ourselves in a place of faith where God is not limited. So I just, in your own reflection and pondering here, are one of those words on the screen a reality in your life today? Are you worried about something? Fearful about something? Tied up with two opinions? Forgetful, maybe prayerless. If one of those words on the screen is a reality in your life today, how do you root it out? How do you root out doubt? How do you get rid of fear? You've been singing about it all day. You've been talking. You, when we began today, and we talked, we sang a song, Be Thou My Vision. We remind ourselves that, that God never changes in some of the songs we sang. What we're done is we're, we're, we're recalibrating our vision. We're recalibrating our mindset on who God is and who we are. And what happens is sometimes the obstacles that lead to unbelief, that we have this reverse problem. They become God-sized, and God becomes the size of what our problems should be. And we turn those tables around by understanding that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we need to have an, an accurate picture of who God is so that the, the needs that we have or the things that might cause us to fear or doubt, they, they shrink in comparison to who God is. A couple weeks ago, I, I went to uh, Arizona with some buddies. Uh, we planned this trip all year long for, uh, to go to a Ducks game, which was supposed to be an easy win. That part of the trip didn't go so well. 
Uh, in fact, the weather, it was supposed to be sunny. It was not sunny. Phoenix got like three inches of rain in two days. I was like, you know, Oregon got transported. Uh, but we had a great time. In fact, day one, we, we wanted to do, we wanted to drive up to the Grand Canyon and see. I've never seen the Grand Canyon before. I've seen pictures of it. I wanted to see it uh, with my own eyes. We drove up, and true story, we're about, uh, about 45 minutes from the Grand Canyon. It is snowing. And, uh, and we're like, we're just, Lord, let there just be a gap so we can see the Grand Canyon. And, and we get out of the car, and the, I mean, the snow is going sideways. The wind is ripping, and, uh, and it's cold. And, um, and, and we make our way there quickly because it looks like the clouds have lifted a bit. And uh, we, we walk out onto this point, and, and my eyes see the Grand Canyon for the first time. The clouds were lifted off. And I see... And the word I like to use is awesome, but I heard that used for the turkey we had on Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> so I can't use that word. I, it was like this, I was just awestruck. It took my breath away. I think I said out loud, oh my. In that moment, in the size, in the scope and the beauty of what I was looking at, all else seemed so small. Even the ducks. <laughs> it just seemed so small. Friends, when unbelief finds root in our lives, when we recalibrate our vision with God through worship, when we do things like we're doing today and we remind ourselves of who God is, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the God who parts the waters. He is the God who heals. He is the God who, who touches the untouchable. He is the God who brings water out of the rock. rock. The, the God who does the impossible. All things are possible with him. When our eyes, when our minds are recalibrated on the reality of who he is, all else Hails. And that worship roots out unbelief. And it isn't just corporate worship. It's your private worship during the week. It's in times alone with God that the things that seem huge become small. We catch a glimpse of who God is. If only the villagers in Nazareth could get a glimpse of who was standing in their midst. Friends, if only we could catch a glimpse of who it is that we worship, who is in our midst, the limits would be off. And God would see us all lined up just waiting for a touch. <laughs> so I want to do that today. Jeff and the team are going to come and join us. And I want us to just practically live this out, to provide an opportunity for us to draw near, for us to bring our fear, to bring our worry, to bring our doubt, even our forgetfulness, yes, even our prayerlessness, to, to bring all that all this, these manifestations of unbelief and bring it and place it at his feet and ask Jesus to recalibrate minds and, 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 and eyes 
so that faith would rise.